Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The first version of any scene I write is kind of the lifeless version in which people are just being very reasonable and sensible and everybody's just getting along fine. And then sometimes I'll go to the opposite extreme. I'll rewrite the scene so it's just like people screaming and throwing things. And I'm like, okay, that's also not the interesting version of the scene. I have to kind of find the right pitch. And oftentimes it's like acting the scene out in my head a few times. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, at the top of this episode, we heard someone talking about writing a scene. So I think we can guess that your guest this week is a writer, but fill us in. Yeah, that was Charlie Jane Anders, who is indeed a writer, known mostly for science fiction or speculative fiction. Her books have great titles, and those titles include Victories Greater Than Death, All the Birds in the Sky, and The City in the Middle of the Night. One of the great things about this show is that we don't always have a news peg, We just look for interesting people and we talk to them. But Charlie Jane does have a new book. It's out in the world very, very soon. Can you tell me a little bit about Never Say You Can't Survive? Which, as you say, is a really good title. (laughs) Yeah, it's a super practical book of advice about, and this is from the introduction, how you can use creative writing to survive the worst things history can throw at you. Um... She is very clear that she's not in the business of providing rules, but she does a great job of sharing some lessons that she's learned over the course of her writing career. And it's full of exercises and wisdom. I'm not a writer of fiction, but I found it very useful because it's just really down to earth. It's all about demystifying the writing process. Well, I'm very excited to hear your chat, and I understand that Slate Plus subscribers will get a little something extra this week. Yes. In Never Say You Can't Survive, Charlie Jane talks about the difference between the imaginary reader and the inner critic. So I asked her to elaborate on that, and she also told me how she comes up with those titles. Oh, I could really use some advice on titling books. <laughs> Bonus segments like these are, are really just one of so many reasons that you should join Slate Plus today. You get this members-only content, but you also get access to everything on Slate.com without ever hitting a paywall, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's Big Mood, Little Mood. Most importantly, of course, you'll be supporting our colleagues' journalism and the work that we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Now let's listen in to June's conversation with the writer Charlie Jane Anders. Anders. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a writer and organizer and uh, sometime journalist. And I've written a couple of books recently, a young adult space fantasy book uh, in the sort of vein of Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy called Victories Greater Than Death. And then I now I have a new book that's just out called Never Say You Can't Survive. And that's about how to use creative writing to get through really challenging, tough times in history and in the world. Yes. And that is why I wanted to have you on Working, because it's a show about the creative process. And you have an entire book about the creative process. As you say, it's out on August 17th and it's full of really great advice and really practical exercises, some of which we'll talk about. But I wonder if you could read the first two paragraphs of the book's introduction. Now, I want to warn listeners that it's kind of heavy and it's a real gut punch, but it really does set up the kind of galvanizing aspect of this book. The the bit that really I'm thinking of when you said you're, you, you, you know, you gave your second uh, kind of identity as organizer, like, yeah, that makes sense in the context of the first couple of paragraphs. Yeah. So here we go. 2020 was the worst year of my life. The same as for many other people. My father died of COVID-19, and this was part of a death toll that felt seismic, as if the landscape itself was being churned by overwhelming loss. I was coping with a cluster of family crises and struggling to finish a late book manuscript while trying to keep a dozen other commitments, and the world around me was nine kinds of messed up. One thing got me through that hell year, dreaming up imaginary worlds and larger-than-life people who never lived. So clearly you believe that creative writing can be a sort of shield against hard times. Can you explain why? Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of there's a thing that we naturally do uh, when we're in the middle of hardship and, you know, political torment, which is that we kind of retreat into our imaginations. And I think that that's a really healthy coping mechanism. I think it's a healthy process that we do. And, you know, from a very young age, I was doing that all the time. I was very prone to daydreaming. (laughs) And the more kind of school was giving me a hard time, the more I just wanted to lose myself in my own daydreams. And the reason why I'm, you know, able to do anything now is because I had one teacher in particular who saw that daydreaming that I was doing and decided to lean into it and use it to try to help me to get better at school instead of treating it as a problem that needed to be solved. But I think that, you know, what happens when you kind of intentionally lean into that sort of daydreaming and that, you know, imagination and that kind of, you know, escapist impulse is that you can create your own fictional worlds and your own fictional characters. And even if this is actually true, even if you're doing creative nonfiction, if you're writing memoir, you're still kind of using your imagination and transporting yourself to another time and place. And you're kind of lost in another reality in a way that 
is kind of a, you can form a little bubble of imagination around yourself. And I sort of talk a lot in the book about how when you create a fictional character, you're kind of making yourself an imaginary friend (laughs) who you can hang out with and kind of live vicariously through and also kind of get sucked into their adventures and kind of root for them and kind of also think about the challenges that they might be facing. And that's just like a really good alternative to the real life challenges that we all are having to deal with. And finally, I think that, you know, the thing that we do when we're reading, where we get lost in the story, and we're just like dying to know what happens next and kind of immersed in the world. I think that if you're having a really good writing day, you get that but a little bit extra too. You get a little bit more of that because you're kind of some part of your brain is really activated and you're really kind of like trying to weave this story around yourself. And it can be just really a really powerful way to survive stuff and possibly to help others to survive as well. Sometimes it's actually pretty reasonable to feel overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. Is that a good time to write? Like, should you push through depression or anger in order to write? Does does it work at any time? I mean, I think that uh, creativity and imagination can be a, a balm at any time. I also think that, uh, you know, when we start thinking of it in terms of like, you know, push through the pain or, mm. you know, if you're like, if you're running you know, a 10K and you get a a stitch in your side and you're like, I'm just going to run through the pain. I don't think that that's always necessarily healthy. It's obviously very individual. But I think that if you start thinking in those terms, you're kind of losing some of the good of it. And you're also just kind of making it into an obligation and something that you're Mm. forcing yourself to do. And I've had a lot of really tough conversations recently with people who are just like, you know, the more I feel like I should be writing, the less I want to write. Or the more I feel like, you know, this is my job and I'm, you know, I'm shirking my, my duties, the, the less that they want to write. And I, one of the pieces of advice I give in the book is, you know, if there's something that you want to do that's creative, that's maybe not the thing you sh- think you should be doing, just do that. Even <laughs> if it's, you know, even if it doesn't result in words on a page that you could show to anybody else or get published or whatever, even if it's just like fan fiction or just like, you know, your own fanciful musings about something, even if it's just something completely frivolous and weird and silly that's just kind of like you goofing off in your own way, whatever is going to just help you to kind of distract yourself, I think is really good. And so, you know, I think that I'm very anti the idea that like, you know, we should no pain, no gain or whatever. I think that, you know, actually in the long term, you know, no pain is probably a lot better. It probably has means more gain in a lot of ways. There definitely, if you're on deadline, if you've signed a book contract and you're like, I promise to get this book done by a certain date, then, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But I think for most of us, most of the time, this is part of self-care. It's not all of self-care. And I think the other parts of self-care are also very important. So you have really great advice, I thought, about starting a project. You say that for you, things often start with curiosity. How do you mean I think curiosity is almost the whole ballgame for me in a way, especially mm-hmm. when I'm writing a first draft. And like I was saying before, the thing when you're reading a story and you're just like getting immersed in it and you want to know what happens next and you're like, I hope this character is going to be okay. Oh my gosh, what's this character going to do when they find out that this other character, you know, totally went behind their back and, you know, stole the magic pretzel from like <laughs> the, the pretzel bakery or whatever. You keep reading because you want to know what happens next and because you want to know more about these characters and because you want to understand their world. And I find that when I'm writing, it's the exact same thing. If I'm not curious about the characters and about what's coming next, even if I have an outline, even if I'm like, okay, 
okay, well, I know roughly that we're going here and we're going here. You know, there's a thing of like, well, you can know that in real life, we often know that something is bound to happen. Like we know that there's an election coming up. We know that (laughs) It's back to school. As you and I are talking, it's August. It's going to be back to school time soon. We know about things that are coming up, but we're still kind of curious and possibly a little bit apprehensive about what's going to happen when these things arrive. And I think it's the same thing when you're writing. Even if you have an outline, you're still really curious about where things are going. And for me, you know, how I build the characters and how I build the world and how I build all of that stuff is not by like you know, so much imposing my will, like mm. as a, some kind of benign dictator sitting on a, you know, top of a mountain somewhere. It's getting curious and just asking a bunch of questions and trying to find answers that lead to more questions. You know, I feel like if the answer to a question is like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now I don't need to know anymore. Then that's probably not a good answer. <laughs> right. Because, you know, it's like, okay, why does this character carry around a watch chain with no pocket watch? Well, you know, there could be a boring answer, like they lost their pocket watch, <laughs> and they just haven't gotten around to getting rid of their watch chain. Or it could be they suffered a terrible tragedy 20 years ago, and they carry this watch chain to remind them, oh, what was that tragedy? I want to mm. know more about that. The more you can keep peeling layers, and finding more stuff to wonder about, the more you're going to keep digging. And I think that that's that's how I get really sucked into writing just the same way I get sucked into reading is I'm like, okay, that I want to know more about that. When it comes to creating characters, uh, which you've talked about a little bit, you wrote, I often find that when a character isn't clicking, it's because I'm avoiding the biggest pain points because nobody likes to dwell on unpleasant things. That really struck me. Uh, Can you give some examples of the kind of pain points that you're talking about uh, for people who might be you know, facing similar problems with characters. Yeah, I mean, you know, pain points, it's usually the really obvious stuff. Like if something really bad happens and people don't kind of react to it in the way that you kind of would expect them to, if they're just like, oh, okay, you know, that bad thing happened and like, I'm just going to go with it because what can I do? And that's that's not how people react in real life. It's not really, you know, how you want your characters to react. I actually had this literally the other day. I'm working on another adult novel mm-hmm. and I don't want to give too many spoilers. It hasn't even, even been announced yet, but it's a fantasy novel and the main character's partner has something kind of bad happen to them because the main character was keeping a huge kind of magical secret from them. And then they go to try to figure out what happened. And I kind of was underplaying, like, not kind of, I was definitely underplaying (laughs) the partner's reaction. The partner was kind of being way too reasonable about this bad thing that happened to them as a result of their partner basically lying to them. And I was like, yeah, this is this, no wonder these scenes are feeling lifeless. No wonder I'm losing interest in these characters. They're not having realistic reactions Mm -hmm. because I identify so strongly with this main character. I don't want her to be in trouble for the bad things she did. I want her to get a free pass because I would want a free pass in that situation. And so I'm just unconsciously being like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You didn't you didn't mess up that badly. It's fine. And like, in fact, no, she <laughs> did mess up that badly and she needs to be in real trouble. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I kind of confronted that, the story kind of came, it roared back to life. And I was like, oh, right, that's right. Gosh, this is where the story has to go now because this person has to confront or, you know, acknowledge the, the consequences of their, their actions. Yeah. I feel like, you know, people, I often want my characters to be nicer people than they really are. Like, I want them to just not bear grudges or have resentments or, you know, obsess about stuff that they really might be obsessing about. Yeah. I also just, you know, I feel like 
it's just it's sort of natural. I'm I'm a very conflict averse person in real life. I don't <laughs> yeah, like to too. confront people. I don't like to get into fights. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I bring that to my fiction, and then I always have to take a step back and really, you know, and often the first version of any scene I write is kind of the lifeless version, mm-hmm. which people are just being very reasonable and sensible, and everybody's just getting along fine. And then sometimes I'll go to the opposite extreme. I'll rewrite the scene so it's just like people screaming and throwing <laughs> things. And I'm like, okay, that's also not the interesting version of the scene because that just feels over the top and ridiculous. I have to kind of find the right pitch. And oftentimes it's like acting the scene out in my head a few times huh. to find like, what is this person really feeling in this scene? What do they know as they go into the scene? What do they find out? How does this kind of hit them? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's interesting for me to hear you say that you identify with many of your characters you like them you want them to you know you want them to be reasonable you want them to like have a nice day uh have a nice life but another thing that struck me as I was reading the book was how strange the relationship is between a creator and her characters so for example uh what I was reading I highlighted give your protagonist a goal they can never have which like yeah I can see that's awesome advice for like trying to create drama you know that makes that's an interesting character point but you've really laid it bare. Like, are the characters your friends? Are they your puppets? How do you think of that relationship? I mean, you really do have to have a kind of double consciousness because they're your friends and your puppets. <laughs> yeah. And you need to think of them in both ways. You need to kind of think of them as, you know, and I also talk in the book about how you're kind of the torturer, but you're also the tortured. Yeah. You know, and you're like, you're coming up with fresh torments for these people who you love and identify with and think of as extensions of yourself. It's a really weird relationship that you have to these fictional people. And I I do think that, you know, in real life, there's a part of me that stands back and analyzes everything Mm. from like this weird, great distance. Mm. And then there's also a part of me that's right there in it. And those two parts coexist in real life in my actual world. So I feel like it's not unfamiliar for me to be doing that in fiction. But there is a part of me that definitely stands back and thinks about like, okay, what do these characters actually want? What's the most interesting thing they could want? And you can't just make a character want anything. It has to make sense. It has to kind of be a thing that they actually are going to, that's going to kind of go with the version of them that lives in your head. Mm -hmm. But you can totally change your mind about what a character wants if the goal that you gave them is too easy or too boring or whatever, you can be like, okay, well, you know what would make sense is if this character really wants a thing that's kind of unattainable or, you know, they they haven't really thought it through, like what it would mean to have this thing that they want. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's a thing that they could achieve, but it would be really bad if they got what they wanted for them and for everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, I think in the book I talk a lot about Wreck-It Ralph because I'm obsessed with Wreck-It Ralph. Notice that. And I think Wreck-It Ralph is like, I think I say this in the book, it's a masterclass in motivation. You know from the beginning that his goal of getting like a little ribbon that says hero is is not what he should be wanting. It's not not a healthy goal for him and it's not (laughs) going to give him what he really wants deep down. But you can't stop rooting for him to have it even though you know he shouldn't have it. Kind of. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with writer Charlie Jane Anders after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Every week on Working, we talk to interesting people about their jobs. But one of our goals for this show is to help our listeners, you, with your creative process. Ask us about anything. Getting inspired, getting paid, getting better at whatever it is you do. You can reach us at working at slate.com or leave us a message at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's hear more of June's conversation with the writer Charlie Jane Anders. Maybe the thing that most stuck with me uh, from the book was when you mentioned how watching TV has conditioned you to think of how, you know, you build a TV show, you know, with these standing sets. So like Frazier has the apartment, the radio station studio, the coffee shop. And you think of similar sorts of places when you're starting a new story. I'd never heard of that concept outside the world of TV before, and I love it. Uh, Tell me more. I mean, to some extent, this is me confessing my limitations as a writer, which is that, you know, I feel like most of the time I can bring a handful of locations to life, like fully to life Mm. in the course of a story. And, you know, it really varies, depends on the type of story, depends on, you know, how many viewpoint characters there are and how sprawling the story is. But, you know, I feel like there are always, for me personally, there are always like a handful of locations that I keep coming back to. And ideally what happens is those locations get invested with emotional weight Mm -hmm. as much as the people in them. And Mm -hmm. you wish that you could hang out in them and that, you know, they are places that you kind of feel attached to and they're not sort of generic. They're not just like, oh, it's a restaurant with like tables and plates and, you know, people with aprons or whatever. It's <laughs> these are things that feel really vivid and unusual and interesting. And like you want to spend time in them and you feel like they're your home in a way. Yeah. And I feel like a good setting is a place that has a few vivid spots. And like I think that we can all think of like books we've read where there was like one or two like places where the characters spent a lot of their time, like the restaurant or bar or cafe where they would hang out on their off hours. Mm. Uh, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the bronze, where they the first few seasons, they always go out to the bronze and kind of go dancing. And, you know, I actually have a bar, an original bar stool from that set oh, in my kitchen. Wow. Which I got at a yard. It's a long story, but I got it very, they were, they were selling off all the props from that show very cheap but it ended <laughs> wow but yeah i feel like you know you want places that you feel like you could hang out where you could feel like you could actually go and spend time and it would be like your hangout yeah and the more detail and specificity you can put into those places and the more you can keep coming back to them again and again the more the reader is going to feel like okay these are my hangouts now kind of I found the chapter on imposter syndrome really interesting. The question of who gets to be a writer or whatever the creative role is or who gets to think of themselves that way comes up a lot on this show. And I love that you placed it in the context of competition, among other things, but context of competition. Like, I often don't feel like I can call myself a writer because I'm not Stephen King. I'm not Margaret Atwood. I'm not Charlie Jane Anders. Um, (laughs) 
you wrote really interestingly about that. Um, can you kind of summarize your views on, on competition and, and, and how, how people can kind of avoid getting into that trap? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, we all have this natural tendency to compare ourselves to other people. And, you know, there are always going to be other writers, other authors who are getting acclaim or awards or getting on the bestseller list. And it's like, you know, it makes you feel less than if you you sort of want to put yourself next to them. I feel like I was watching a thing recently where I think it was Tracy Dion was talking about like basically like keep your eyes on your own paper. Don't look at anybody else's paper. Don't don't worry about what other people are doing. What worry worry about what you're doing. And you know, I think that there's like kind of an angel and a devil on our shoulder mm-hmm. at all times mm-hmm. in the writing world. And the the angel is kind of telling us that we're all in this together. We're all part of a community. We're all just trying to like get people more excited about books generally because if people read your books, they might read my books next versus if they don't read your books, they might not read any books. Like they might just be like, well, I'm not going to read anything for a while. And, you know, the more we support a healthy, friendly book culture, the better off everybody is. But then the devil on your shoulder is, is sort of, you know, urging you to kind of envy other people's success or to feel insecure or, you know, if you do the part of the other part of imposter syndrome is that if you do achieve any kind of recognition or success, you start feeling more insecure because you're like, well, obviously they don't realize that I'm a fraud and that, you know, I didn't earn any of those cookies. Those cookies really belong to someone else and I stole them and (laughs) people are going to find out and I'm going to be like dragooned. I don't even know what it means to be dragooned. It sounds like (laughs) a dragon and their goons are like going to rough you up. I don't know. But um, you have to kind of listen to the angel and not the devil because I think it's going to just make it harder for you to write among other things. But I think that unfortunately people will remind you people will come up to you or people will you know ping you and be like oh you know here's a thing that you did that you're getting reclaim and yay for you or you know oh you're you're not doing so well or whatever people will actually kind of tell you your place in what they think is the pecking order which right. i find kind of a little frustrating sometimes yes no kidding um before the pandemic i should preface um i first became aware of you not really because of your fiction or your journalism, but because on Twitter you always seem to be organizing readings and author get-togethers in San Francisco. You clearly put a lot of time and energy into that. Why is that kind of gathering important to you? Referring back to the stuff about the angel and the devil, I think that the more we have community and the more, you know, the more writing is not this like solitary act that we do in a gable or a garret or whatever, you know, the more that we're out there in the world with other authors and the more we're kind of, I don't know, cross-fertilizing and sharing and hearing vastly different approaches to writing all the time from other people, the healthier the ecosystem is going to be. And I, I just feel like, this is a huge part, and I really missed it. I've missed it a lot during the pandemic, and unfortunately I haven't found that Zoom events are like quite as good of a substitute as I'd like um, for various reasons, which I, I'm still sad about, and I'm sorry to, to people who love Zoom events. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that they're great in a lot of ways, but I, I really love, you know, being in a space where people are just like getting exposed to lots of different voices Mm -hmm. and kind of discovering new favorite writers. And, you know, a thing that I tried to do with my events, particularly Writers with Drinks, which was this event I've been organizing for a a very long time, um, is kind of bring together different genres, different scenes, different kind of styles and different, different cliques, I guess, different kind of 
groups of people to and make them listen to each other and sort of, you know, you might show up because you love Audrey Niffenegger, but you're going to hear an amazing poet, you're going to hear a science fiction person, you're going to hear, you know, maybe somebody doing stand-up comedy, mm. and you're going to discover voices that you weren't aware of before. And I don't know, that's something that's really important, I'm really passionate about. And I feel like book community or, you know, the literary world is always a little bit in danger of being kind of pushed to the margins by other stuff. And we just, especially nowadays, we really need to find ways to show up for each other. You also say that you encourage people to read their work out loud as often as they can uh, in front of an audience. Why is that important? For me, that's really a part of finding your voice as a writer and like literally finding your voice because when you're outstanding, when you're reading your work aloud, stuff that seemed one way on the page is going to seem very different when you read it out loud. It's going to just, the sentences are going to have a different shape. They're going to have a different flow. Um, You might find yourself emphasizing things that you didn't think were going to be emphasized. Mm -hmm. You might, you're going to possibly be doing the voices of the different characters, which can be really fun and interesting. You're going to see the audience reacting if there's any kind of audience, even if it's your cat. I read to my cat sometimes. <laughs> you know, you, you get to see the audience react and like what the audience thinks is funny or dramatic or intense. You know, that's going to tell you something about the work, but also just about your your writing in general. And I feel like, you know, a huge part of how I got better as a writer and also found what worked for me as a writer was just relentlessly reading my work to audiences and and getting to kind of get that feedback in real time in a very different way than somebody, you know, reading it and giving you notes or whatever. Speaking of reading it out loud, you narrated the audiobook version of your book, uh, which I listened to, and you did a great job. And well, thank I'm, you. We, we on another uh, episode of Working, we spoke with Abby Creighton, who's an amazing uh, audiobook narrator. And she mostly reads fiction and she mostly reads romances, actually, and she does an incredible job with them. But I was really impressed because, as I, as I say, I'm a big fan of this this nonfiction book that you've just released that we're talking about. But I think it must be harder to read nonfiction because, you know, you don't have that propulsion of a journey or of adventures or characters. or um, So, first of all, how was the experience? And second, how did you kind of manage that, you know, to bring a lot of variation and and um just to keep it so interesting because it definitely was well thank you i really appreciate that you know i was very nervous about doing this uh, I've, I've never done an audiobook before oh. i've never done anything of that nature really except for you know i read my stuff on podcasts a couple of times mm-hmm. but mostly fiction and so this was definitely new to me and i definitely was very nervous about it also you know, as a trans person, I have a little bit of, you know, anxiety about my voice sometimes. Um, so that was that was very nerve wracking. But once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. I was recording at Women's Audio Mission, which is a wonderful studio here in San Francisco that's kind of a nonprofit that particularly caters to, you know, women, trans and non-binary folks. Oh. Um, and is, you know, it's kind of a feminist audio space. And they have like an incredible studio set up. Wow. Layla, the engineer there, was incredibly great. And uh, also Kimberly Weatherall, I think her name is, was was the director who was in my ear the entire time giving me feedback. So that was great. So that was that made me feel a lot more secure. Um, but, you know, it was just one of those things where I had to really just, you know, think about the words all over again. And this, like, like I said before, this was the second time I'd read the entire book out loud because <laughs> I did it when I was editing it. Yeah. And 
I did a TEDx talk and a TED talk. And when I did the TEDx talk, they actually paid for me to have a session with a, uh, a speech coach or a, a, an elocution coach or whatever, mm-hmm. who gave me a lot of feedback about pauses and kind of how to emphasize words and how to kind of do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I use that a lot now. Like, I feel like that really changed how I do public speaking in general. And so that was a huge plus. So I just tried to draw on all of that. But it was, uh, you know, I feel like even if it's essay type nonfiction, I think good or, you know, interesting nonfiction, I should say, has a narrative quality to it and has mm-hmm. a through line. Yeah. And, you know, trying to find like, where is this section leading towards? What's the interesting part of this section? And how can I kind of bring that out? I tried to sort of think about that a little bit. But uh, it was definitely forcing me to think about all of these words that I'd put down in a different way for sure yeah yeah yeah. but i'm so glad you liked it thank you you're very clear in the book that you are not at all in the business of disseminating writing rules but um is there one piece of advice or insight in this book that feels especially important for aspiring or active writers for that matter to know and to keep in mind I mean, the one piece of advice that I always give everybody is to find community. And that's a thing. I know we just talked about that, but I think that is the number one thing for me. Um, I think that having other writers around and having, you know, and interacting with readers as well will make you a better writer, but it also just will help you to, to stay grounded and keep going through this and to listen to the angel rather than the devil on your shoulder. And to, you know, think of yourself as part of like a whole group of people who are all trying to do this impossible, amazing, weird thing, you know? Yeah. Well, you also talk, though, about community in your fiction. So, you know, world building is this phrase that mostly gets associated with speculative fiction, science fiction, but obviously any bit of fiction demands that a world be built. But you talked about building a community into the worlds that you invent. How do you do that? Is that just, well... You don't just have one person. You have more than one person. Like, it's more than that, right? You know, I'm usually happiest when I'm writing about people who have roots or who have people and places that are important to them. And it kind of gets back to that thing we were talking about of, like, the three sets that you build. But also just, like, you know, I feel like I get impatient, I should say, with fiction where there's just like a rugged individual who belongs to nothing and has no, and is just hasn't got any kind of cultural background that they Mm -hmm. come from. And is just like, they're kind of just like a sui generis person against like a backdrop of a world that's like maybe homogenous Mm -hmm. and that they are not part of in some way. I think that people who belong to communities and who have ties to groups of people are just much more interesting and, you know, obviously you can be at odds with your community. You know, a tried and true storytelling thing is people who come from one sort of community or one kind of background and then reject that or move beyond it and find a new kind of quote-unquote chosen family that they can belong to. And that's also a legit form of community for sure. And it's not always great. It's not, you know, sometimes when you belong to a community, people are going to have expectations of you. And like, you know, I always say if if you're a goth People could be like, oh, you can't wear pink. You're a goth. You're, you're supposed to, you know, you don't wear that. You can't listen to Taylor Swift and be a goth. You know, right. that's not allowed. Right. And so people are going to have their own ideas about what it means to be a member of a community. And I think that there's a lot of interesting conflict and story to be found in that. I don't think there's anything wrong with exploring that. But I do think that people who don't 
have a community that they belong to or that they're discovering or whatever, they tend to be a bit boring. Charlie Jane, thank you so much for the book and also for your time. It's been really great to talk with you. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. June, I'm so curious about Charlie Jean's new book, which sounds like it's really specifically advice for the writer working in a creative mode. You know, she's dispensing the wisdom that she's learned specific to her field. But I'm wondering whether you found something in the book that was relevant to the work that you do that isn't about writing in a creative mode, writing fiction. Yeah, I mean, the book is definitely focused on the strange process of inventing people and situations and stories. But I did get a lot out of the book for my own nonfiction writing. Um, She really stresses the importance of keeping the reader in mind and what you can do to keep them engaged, how to best serve their needs and their desires. And she has a lot of tips about what you can do to keep the reader gripped by the stories you're telling them, whatever kind of stories they are. Because I write for a living, I'm not sure that I had ever really considered what Charlie Jean talks about early in this conversation. That writing can help you as a sort of outlet, a coping strategy, a way to engage that can be actually as transporting as reading a good book. You know, I know that to be true. I just hadn't thought of it in those terms for a while. But it really is absolutely true. Like, sometimes I feel great (laughs) after just getting something down on paper, no matter what it is. In a strange way, that doesn't have a lot to do with my career. It has to do with kind of like self-care in a strange Mm -hmm. way. And maybe that sort of speaks to a fundamental human impulse towards storytelling, towards creative outlet. Absolutely. I I know just what you mean. And... Charlie Jane has a real talent for communicating like the joy of writing, reading Never Say You Can't Survive. It really made me want to write fiction, you know, not a novel, not for publication, but just for fun. 
just to entertain my cat. Like it, it, it really does a great job of just like giving it. Like, wouldn't this be a fun thing to do? Uh, and, and it's awesome to have that kind of challenge, but also something that just seems just pleasurable. Charlie Jean seems like a writer who's very attuned to her reader or attuned to what it is to read at all. She describes the imperative of curiosity as she writes, and she she likens it to what makes the reader turn the page. And hearing her talk about that was so interesting to me because it wasn't about being curious in a range of subjects. You know, it wasn't saying like, oh, I'm curious about science or I'm curious about genetics or I'm curious about math. It was saying, I'm curious about what's going to happen in this fictional world that's being built. And in a way, that's sort of remembering the essence of the thing that you're creating and how it's for an audience. And that seems very generous. Yeah, the concept of curiosity, it comes up a lot over the course of the book. And it does feel like an essential element in the creative process that's sometimes forgotten or at least underplayed. And I think it goes back to her emphasis on taking pleasure in writing. The more fun the writer has inventing and figuring out a narrative and just kind of running with their curiosity, the more likely readers are to have fun experiencing that story. I noticed that Charlie Jane spoke of herself as an organizer Mm. as well as a writer, which suggests that that's really an important part of her work, right? She hosts a salon, which she mentioned in your conversation, and it's clear that there's a sincere commitment on her part to building a community of writers. And I was reminded that in 2016, I believe before I published my first book, I did a sort of an event with Charlie Jane and another writer And she was so nice to me. Mm. She was so nice to me. And I've never forgotten that. You know, I've met a lot of wonderful people in this business. I think that the default mode is kindness more than it's not. But I remember Charlie Jane saying to me, like, hey, if you're ever out West, like, you have to come to my salon. I do this thing. I have all kinds of writers. I would love to have you. And, you know, it never worked out timing wise. But just the simple offer was so generous and has really stayed with me. So when I hear her talk about that as a part of her career, I really understand that and I really value that. Yeah. As the two of you discussed, the pandemic has really disrupted that kind of thing. But at the same time, there are virtual literary events you know, online every single night. Mm. June, I was wondering whether you have attended any of those. I have a few. Um, the pandemic taught me that my hermitude isn't really about not wanting to go out. Even when I was staying at home, I, I still didn't do very much. I think I, it's more about me just wanting my own company rather than not wanting to leave the house. But I was glad to be able to attend a few readings, um, most memorably an event that was organised by Sinister Wisdom, the Lesbian Quarterly, that was celebrating a new book from poet Minnie Bruce Pratt. And maybe it's because poetry always feels very intimate, at least to me. But, you know, just that experience of being on my couch in my, you know, surrounded by all my things, this place, you know, my home. And Minnie Bruce is reading from her new poetry to me. And it did feel like it was just to me. That was a really great feeling. Um, I think over the course of the, you know, the, the time we've been doing the show, we've talked about, you know, which has been the pandemic time. We've talked about a few things that are, you know, maybe democratizing or things that have been made possible uh, and that felt like a very special time that maybe wouldn't have been possible in, in the normals. 
Yeah, I think you have to look at the silver lining because the yes. dark, there are so many dark clouds and yeah. the ability to pop into a literary event that's happening at an independent bookstore in Oklahoma, for mm. example, yeah. is kind of wonderful. And it's kind of, you know, I think anyone who's listening who hasn't availed themselves of that opportunity during this pandemic year really ought to just to see, uh, just to, as you said, have that sort of intimate experience of having a writer read directly to you while you're in your living room, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Your conversation touched on imposter syndrome a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme that has really emerged in the conversations we've had on the show in the past year. Yeah. So many people seem plagued by the feeling that they're phonies, that they mm-hmm. don't deserve to be a part of whatever industry they've chosen. I don't really know how you inoculate yourself against that kind of feeling. And at this point, I've actually come to believe that feeling like an imposter might be a necessity for making good work. (laughs) That if you don't actually have a little self-doubt, you might be worried. But I guess (laughs) if you don't have any self-doubt, it would never occur to you that maybe (laughs) overconfidence is your problem. Yeah, uh, it it is true. This feeling that we call imposter syndrome, it's overwhelming for so many people. But I really like Charlie Jane's approach. You know, she emphasizes that writing isn't about competition. It's about community. And she says you should find the people who support your writing and encourage you and who you can support and encourage. And I've never had the experience of writing being a group activity. But I have to say that just sounds amazing. Again, that just sounds like fun. Um, Ramon. Before we say goodbye this week, I want to ask you a couple of things about your piece, Mirror Writing, uh, a profile of Jason Reynolds that was published in The New Yorker this week. First, I mean, it's beautiful. We'd talked about it a bit while you were writing it, so I knew it was coming. But since I'd not read Reynolds' work, I figured, you know, it would be a piece that would expose me to something I didn't know about. And, And it did. But it was so much more than that. I was really moved by it. You know, when I finished it, I yeah, I was left with some really powerful images, um, the way that I might after reading a really great short story. And those images were about parenting, about Jason's father getting him ready for school when he was a kid or his relationship with his mom today, the way he talks to kids and why he treats them that way. And of course, your relationship to your son. So thank you for just a, a lovely you. piece. Um, thank you. I guess my first question is, maybe kind of banal, but it always strikes me when I read a really informed profile. And so I just have to ask you, how many people did you talk to? And how did you figure out the structure of the profile at how much you were going to keep with each person and which scenes to include? Well, obviously, like when you are writing about someone's life, you want to talk to as many people as possible. You want to talk to people who know that person on an intimate kind of human level, their friends, their family. And then to situate the work that Jason does, I had to talk to people who work in the same business or who have a perspective on it, like the Librarian of Congress or Jackie Woodson or Judy Bloom. <laughs> I did a lot of reporting for this piece. There was a lot of material that couldn't make it in because you really only have, you know, 4,000, 5,000 words to work with, and those words do go quickly. Mm. But all of that reporting is really helpful to me, to help me get my mind around the person I'm writing about. 
it's a tough, it's a tough ask to fix a person in a few thousand words. And yeah. so I think maybe it's sort of comforting to do a lot of research and make sure you've covered your bases. And I'm curious, I admit, uh, about the experience of writing a big piece for The New Yorker. I mean, I know you've written for a lot of magazines, America's finest magazines, but let's face it, The New Yorker is the pinnacle of print. Uh, was the experience of writing and being edited different there? It did feel like a very special experience. There's a level of attention to detail and rigor that I really appreciated. My editor on this piece is your former colleague and your friend, Jessica Winter, <laughs> who is an extraordinary editor. She's a friend of mine. She's a tough editor. She's very rigorous. She understands what she wants of the piece, but she understands what I want of the piece. And, you know, it's a collegial relationship where you're trying to both make the thing as good as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. For me, one of the things that was most special about the experience of working with this magazine was seeing the care in the copy editing and in the fact checking. I had an extraordinary fact checker, a young reporter who worked very closely with me on just really making sure that everything in the piece was accurate and that the way the language reflected the facts was accurate. And to have a copy editor tally up the number of times you use a certain verb and say, okay, <laughs> let's let's address this. Let's sort of find some synonyms here. It feels great. That level yeah. of attention feels really wonderful. And, um, you know, my byline goes on the piece and the New Yorker sort of famously publishes no masthead, but right. there are so many hands involved in the making of good work as you know, that's always the case. And so I'm really grateful that I had those hands holding me up. Wow. Uh, I really recommend it to everyone. I, I realize, too, that we have not said, uh, probably most other people know who he is, uh, are not as ignorant as me, but Jason Reynolds, who you profiled, um, is a, what, do you, what would you call him, a children's writer for children, for young people? He what, is, at this point in his career, he is known as a writer for children and young people, although, as I established yeah. in the piece, that is probably not going to be long the case. He's writing for even younger children now. He's writing a picture book. And he is working on a novel for adults. So at some point, we'll just be able to speak of him as Jason Reynolds, the American writer. Um, And so it was kind of like a great privilege to talk to him just on the cusp of that being true, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, everybody should check it out. The piece is called Mirror Writing. It's by this guy, Ruman Alam, and it's in The New Yorker. We hope you've enjoyed this show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And I'm going to give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, access to every article on Slate.com without ever hitting a paywall, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show, Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope you'd like to support the work that we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thanks to Charlie Jane Anders for being our guest this week, to Grace Woodruff, who has provided tons of incredibly valuable research help with working over the course of the summer, and as always, to our producer, the stupendous Cameron Drews. Make sure to tune in next week for Isaac's conversation with playwright Antoinette Chinonyi Nwandu. Until then, get back to work!
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.